We're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to be starting in verse 12 all the way to the end of chapter 24. A lot of text. Again, these are long narratives towards the back half of Acts. So we're going to be taking bigger chunks of text and kind of just getting an overview of the trials of Paul. This, this is a little bit different than the previous passages we've seen earlier in Acts. Um, with that said, though, I want you to go one verse earlier to verse 11. Because verse 11 really begins the, the paragraph, begins the section on what we're to look at. The breaks that you see in your Bibles where it says a plot to kill Paul, those breaks are not divinely inspired. Grammatically uh, and sequentially, we're starting in verse 11, and that brings us into context. It's sort of the bridge verse between what happened before and after, and as you'll see, it all kind of makes sense. Verse 11 uh, sort of overshadows the remaining passages and kind of indicates to us why everything is taking place. And so it says in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now when it was day, the Jews made a plot and they bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor to drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So the tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we bless you, almighty God. We praise your holy name. Lord, we humble ourselves now. We stand under your word under the purity of your word, under the perfection of your word. O Lord, your word speaks to us, it guides us, it inspires us, it sanctifies us. O Lord, we need cleansing today and renewal. O Father God, instruct us in your precepts. May we behold wondrous things from your law. O Lord, may we see Christ magnified. 
And, oh, Lord, may we understand the, the great love that you have for us through this passage today. As we learn more about Paul and about his trials, help us to remember that in our trials and through it all, you're with us every step of the way. Father, I ask that you would illuminate the text before us today. Give us insight. Give us understanding to not only hear the word and be hearers of the word, but to be a doer of the word, O Lord. I pray that you bring about conviction, repentance, and renew us in our faith. I ask, O Lord, for unction and anointing. O Lord, Holy Spirit, I need you in my mind and in my lips. I pray that you'd overshadow me, speak to me, use me as a vessel of honor for your glory. O Lord, may you receive the honor and praise today in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible tells us that as Christians, you will face trials and tribulations. And if you are a Christian worth your salt, and if you've been saved any amount of time, you will have had experienced the trials and tribulations of following Christ. The Lord said, never said it would be easy. The Lord never told us it would be a bed of roses. In fact, he says, pick up your cross and follow me, indicating if you want to be a Christian, it's a cruciform life. It's a life where you die to self. It's a life where you are constantly carrying around the symbol of the cross, which is death. Because that's what Christ set an example for us. He came to this world and suffered and humbled himself to the point of death that we may understand that being a Christian is not about having more of the world and having more materialistic things and having uh, more fun and having great health and prospering and successful. God blesses us sometimes with those good things. But life is about difficulties too and trials. And it's about God being with us and getting through it. We're going to face difficult times in life. And sometimes you're going to be in moments where you're going to be under such pressure, under such strain, that fear may come over you. Fear is a natural result. It's a human in instinct that uh, indicates to us danger, imposing danger. Uh, fear is a, is a good thing. If we're fearless, it means that in some ways you're a sociopath and uh, you're reckless, Right? Fear is that way of telling us that there's dangerous things ahead and we ought to be cautious. But fear, when it gets out of control, can paralyze and ruin our lives. If you were in Paul's shoes right now, just imagine how you would feel. You've been detained. You know that the hijinks of the Sanhedrin is determined to bring you down, to destroy you and kill you. You've already seen how a mob, a vicious mob, went out to take Paul down. He was rescued by Claudius Lysias, the tribune of Jerusalem, brought into the fortress of Antonio. And here he is now, wondering what is next. And in that moment of darkness, the Lord comforts him. Paul, I'm with you. There in his prison cell, alone in the dark, fearful, not knowing what would happen, God's presence comforted him. Paul, just as you testified in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome. You know what Jesus is telling Paul? Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. I have a plan for you. Your, my plan is you're going to Rome. 
and nothing will get in the way of that. What comfort that must have brought to Paul. Richard Wormbrand, the Lutheran pastor who endured great persecution uh, during the communist regime in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, was uh, arrested and was held uh, as a prisoner for quite some time, tortured. In fact, his autobiography is Tortured for Christ. Uh, Voice of Martyrs gives that out quite often as a book form, and even his video is on there. Um, but what really touched me about his testimony, in his darkest moments in that cell, when all seemed lost, when all hope was gone, it was the sweet presence of God that comforted him in his cell. That's what takes away the fear. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The same Paul who wrote those words lived those words. And we're about to see how his suffering will only intensify. And so what happens now? We get to the next stop here. And the next stop here is that uh, there is a plot to kill Paul. All right? He's already escaped death twice. He was beaten to within an inch of his life by a vicious mob. I can't imagine how, how physically uh, hurt he was and how much uh, bodily damage and harm he endured. It must have been a recovery. He was beaten and nearly taken out. He was rescued, brought into the uh, fortress. He stood before a preliminary healing, hearing rather before the Sanhedrin and uh, seeing that it was a kangaroo court, seeing the cards stacked against them, he basically appeals to the Pharisees, which he was a member of, saying, listen, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And it causes a great upheaval and they're all at each other's uh, throats and there's a big war uh, and conflict within the Sanhedrin. And once again, he escapes within an inch of his life. The Jews are fed up. They want him dead. They're sick and tired of the nonsense. And you could just see the murderous rage. This is not even about having a fair trial. You could see here, we want him dead. And, and 40 thugs, we're not told who these guys are. I'm assuming that these are radicals, these are zealots, these are possibly the terrorists that we've, we've been referred to a few times as the Sakari. These are the Jewish terrorists of those days. Uh, probably plotted and said, we're going to fast. And pray. We're going to bind ourselves by an oath to God. What a stupid oath, right? It's, I, I love the how our, our Bible study and our and our preaching kind of go hand in hand sometimes. We, we see these themes of the sovereignty of God. And if you're with us this Wednesday in the book of Judges, we'll read about Jephthah who made a horrible oath as well. And he had to live with the consequences of that. But here's a just a stupid oath. They bound themselves by an oath to God. We're, gonna, we're not eating and drinking until we kill Paul. And then they bring it before the Sanhedrin, the high council, the religious authorities of Israel, the representatives of God to the people. And they say, guess what? We've plotted to kill Paul and we're bound ourselves by an oath until we achieve it. And the Sanhedrin does what? They give their blessings. It shows you how utterly corrupt and filthy and dirty the Sanhedrin was. But then again, this is the same religious council that crucified our Lord. These men are not men of God. They're pagans. They're worse than pagans. The pagans have more honor here as we see. The Romans have more honor than the Jews. 
The Jews who know the law of God who know the ways of God. And, and you can almost see when Paul is writing to the Romans in the second chapter. He says, you who ought to know the law, you break the law. The Gentiles are the law written in their hearts. They do the law more than you. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you could see the utter hypocrisy and wickedness of the Jewish state. But remember the words of the Lord. Take courage, Paul, for you're going to testify in Rome just as you testified in Jerusalem. And this is what we're really seeing, the sovereign hand of God. So, so the first part of our sermon, let's look at this, this sovereign care, the providential care of Paul in this plot. So what happens? The plot is on. The idea is, let's get Paul for another hearing before the Sanhedrin. While they're transporting him through the dark alleys of Jerusalem, we're going to lay an ambush. And this was very common in those days. And as they're walking through, we're just going to take him out. We're going to kill him. Nothing so surprising here. Historically, these things happen all the time. It was actually Martin Luther, and I saw a lot of echoes here of Luther's own trial when he went before uh, um, uh, um, the Diet of Worms to testify of his own convictions on justification by faith alone. He was guaranteed safe passage. Uh, and, and there, uh, in the midst of, the, of the, the forest, were many people lying in ambush ready to kill him too. And God providentially and safely kept him. When God is with you, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And this is something that the child of God needs to know. These men could plot and plan and fast and pray all they want. Nothing, not a hair on Paul's head would be singed apart from the will of God. Amen? So anyway, Paul is in prison, and what takes place? Paul's nephew discovered the plot. We learn about that Paul has a nephew. He has a sister. Apparently, they probably live in Jerusalem, and it's probably one of the most tantalizing parts of Scripture, right? We're not told who he was. We're not told his name. We're not told her, her name. In fact, nothing more is told about Paul's sister or nephew throughout the remainder of Scripture. And Luke doesn't satisfy our curiosity, does he? However, we see that uh, in this context, God moves upon uh, this young man. How did he find out the plot? We don't know. Uh, somehow he must have had inroads within the uh, circles of the high echelon of Jewish society. He discovered the plot. He overheard it. And so what does he do? He gains access to the prison. How did he gain access? Uh, the, the Greek term here is speaking that he's a lad. He's a young man. How in the world can a young man gain access to a Roman tribune to get to the prison, to speak to Paul? All of this is very questionable. And I think that that's the whole point. Rather than get bogged down in the details, we have to see that this is God's providence. It was God who allowed him to discover the plot to take Paul's life. It was God who allowed him to get into the prison. It was God who allowed him to speak to Paul, and it was God who moved upon the heart of Claudius Lysias to actually sit down and talk with the young man and not take his head off. And it was God who moved upon Claudius Lysias' heart to believe the young man. You can't help but to see the providence of God in this. Paul, I'm keeping you safe, and God is as good as his word. It is amazing when you see the providential care of God 
unfold. Robert Rayburn comments this, we have first of all God's sovereign disposal of history, even the history of a particular man that events that make up his life, that take him from one place to another, from one situation to another. The divine plan and purpose include very obviously here not only the end result by the means, but the means by which it is achieved. Do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that he is sovereign over every human being, over every event, over every affair, that nothing happens by circumstance or coincidence or, or, or is not incidental, but that every event, even the slightest thing that happens in created order is part of the purpose and plan of God? The Lord is in heaven. He does all that he wills. And yet at the same time, if it were not for Paul's nephew hearing the report, and if it were not for Paul's nephew acting upon it, and going and taking a risk and going to the prison, and taking a risk and speaking to Claudius Lysias, none of this would have happened. This is what we call, when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the will of man, the doctrine of concurrence. That both the will of God and the will of man are working concurrently. We talk about the primary cause being that of God. It is God who willed all this to occur. But the secondary cause is the fact that Paul's nephew made the action. He took, he took the steps to make this occur. So what does that mean? It means that Paul's nephew didn't sit there and say, Well, the Lord's sovereign. He can take care of it. I'm not doing anything. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying that, but something had to be done. When Paul received the report, Paul could have said to his nephew, thank you, bless your soul. Well, what are we going to do about Paul? We'll do nothing. God is sovereign. He'll take care of it. See, that's the exact wrong way to look at God's sovereignty. Inaction doesn't, or belief in God's sovereignty doesn't equal inaction. It means that acting upon what we know to be true, what we know to be right, and doing something about what we need to do. That's caring about the will of God. He had to rescue his uncle, and he did everything he could in his power to do it. Is God able to save him without him? Absolutely. God could have intervened. He could have, said, he could have, he could have got someone else to accomplish the work that Paul's nephew would have done. But he was faithful in following what he believed to be right and true. And so this doesn't negate human will and human responsibility, but in fact affirms that God's will ultimately triumphs. This is throughout the Bible. God told Abraham when he made a covenant with him, he says, listen, your descendants, they're going to be servants in Egypt for a long time. It's going to be like 400 years before they come back to settle the land of Canaan. And that was it. That's all he told Abraham. He did not tell him how that was going to happen. He didn't tell him that among his grandchildren, there is going to be a big dispute. He didn't tell him that among his 12 grandsons, that one of them would be favored by, uh, or I should say his great-grandchildren, would be favored by his grandson, Jacob, and that the other great-grandchildren would be absolutely jealous and sell him into slavery to Egypt. And that Joseph, 
who was Abraham's great-grandson, would be there for many years, first as a slave in Potiphar's house, then he would be a slave, uh, or be in jail, rather, imprisoned on false accusations, and it was there, we know the whole story, he met the baker, he met the wine cup bearer, and eventually he gets an audience with Pharaoh, he interprets his dream, he's elevated to the prime minister of Egypt, and then Joseph, who really shouldn't have had a chance finds himself in the most prosperous place in life. He rescues his father. He rescues his brothers. They all move to Egypt to escape the famine. And when his brothers find out who he is, they're terrified. That's it. Joseph's going to get us. And what does Joseph say to them in Genesis 50, 20? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's the doctrine of concurrence. Did Jacob's brothers intend evil? Absolutely. They hated Joseph they wanted him dead. But God had a greater intention in that. You see, this gives us the confidence to know that even when evil occurs in life, even when evil people seem to get their way, like why does God allow evil to succeed? Because in that, God has a purpose and a plan. God uses the evil intentions of man to achieve his purpose and will for his people. Romans 8.28 tells us God works all things, all things together for the good of his people, called according to his grace, called according to his love. That means all things, both pleasant and unpleasant. God is using all things together for good. Not using, I take that back. The text said he's working, he's energizing. He's crafting it about. And so what do we see here? Paul is rescued from this plot. It is made aware to Claudius Lysias, and the wheels get in motion for Paul's rescue. Let's look at verse 23. Then he called, this is Claudius Lysias, called two of the centurions and said, now, two centurions, that means two captains over 100 soldiers. That's 200 soldiers. That's a big detachment. And he says to the two centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, readings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. When it was disclosed to, to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to the instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's, Herod's praetorium. He acts on this, Claudius Lysias. Again, God's sovereignly moving upon the heart of this man. 
if you're Claudius Lysias, you must be baffled at this point. You have to be perplexed. I can just imagine him going home at night and having dinner with his wife. You'll never believe what happened at work today again. This guy, Paul, I just can't seem to figure out. Everybody wants him dead. I don't know why. We have plots and, and, and the Sanhedrin. It's just crazy. And so at this point, he realizes Paul's life is in jeopardy. Paul is a Roman citizen, and he doesn't want that blood and responsibility on his hands. And so being a righteous man, he could have just left Paul to languish, but he sends a detachment of 470 soldiers to escort Paul to Caesarea. Caesarea is the Roman capital of Judea. This is where the governor's mansion is. And Felix is the Roman governor at this point. We'll learn a little bit more about him in a minute. The governor at one point, when Jesus was crucified, was Pontius Pilate. Governors that are sent to Judea are not the happiest people. Why? Because Israel, and Jerusalem in particular, uh, Judea, is just filled with turmoil. This is like, this is like the place you do not want to go. The, the Jews are angry, they're hostile, they're mad, there's constant insurrections, there's constant riots, and if there's one thing Romans hate, they hate riots. They hate insurrections. And we'll see how this leads up to the charges against Paul. Remember, Rome was founded on the principle of Pax Romana. Right? They brought peace to the world. Peace through the sword, that is. And so the idea that there's instability in Roman provinces basically makes the Roman Empire look like they don't have control. And so if you're a governor of a region and the people there are out of control... That falls on you and you get in trouble. Nobody wants the job in Judea because Judea is a place where there's constant riots, constant insurrections, and you constantly have to bear the weight and responsibility of that. So you get a picture of how this is really a tense situation between Rome and Jerusalem, and here's Paul in the middle of it all. Paul's in this balancing act. He has Roman citizenship. He's, he's dealing with the Roman government. At the same time, he's Jewish. And, and here he is caught in the balance between the two major powers of the world. On one end, the, the religious hierarchy of, of Israel. And on the other hand, the most powerful empire in the world. This could go bad either way and end with Paul's life. But Paul is confident through all of this. Why so many soldiers? Again, Terrorist groups are in wait and ambush along the open roads, and so they need to get him safely. About halfway there, the, the two legions return. The cavalry brings Paul to Caesarea, and he's held in detention there until his hearing. He is kept safe. Now, I want you to think about this, because think about your own life. As we talk about the providence of God, as we talk about the sovereignty of God, think over your own life. Think of how many times... God has orchestrated events in your life in such a way that has kept you safe. Think about how many times where you thought, oh my goodness, I could have been there. Years ago, during uh, September 11, 2001, we were members of North Shore Baptist Church, and we had a friend of ours who worked in the building, uh, uh, the Twin Towers. He was supposed to go to work that day. He was supposed to be in his office he took off that day. I forgot what reason it was, but he took off. He did not go into the office. That was the day the towers burned down. I can't remember the details, but the providential hand of God kept him out of those buildings on that day. 
How many times that's happened to me in my life where God has kept me? Oftentimes when I get stuck in a traffic jam on the parkway, it brings great annoyance, right? Here we go, especially if you live in New York. Long Island, the Bronx, Queens, traffic is, uh, forget it. But you know what? You always wonder, what is God protecting me from down the road? I may be detained here. Paul would be detained for two years in Caesarea. Two years. This is a man who's on the go every day. This is a man who doesn't sit still. He gets into one town, preaches the gospel. Okay, we got to go near and preach the gospel. We have to go here. This is a guy who's been on the move for years. God says, I'm going to slow you down, Paul. I'm, I'm going to hold you in detention for two years in Caesarea. That could drive someone mad, especially when they're on the go. But God was protecting Paul. And this would be a different season in Paul's life. And sometimes God works through us that way. Let's get to the second part now, the second point, and that's Paul's trial before Felix. Let's learn a little bit about Felix. He's the judge who will preside over this case. Now, Felix is a very ungodly man, like most Roman governors, but Felix is a pretty bad guy. Felix was born a slave, and he was granted his freedom by Emperor Claudius. And much like the Tribune, who was also granted his freedom, Lysias, by Claudius. And Lysias actually adopted the name Claudius uh, in honor of receiving his, his freedom. Uh, so he was born a slave, and once he was given his freedom, he worked his way up the ranks of uh, high Roman society pretty quickly. He learned to impress people, and he had good political acumen. And um, he was able to achieve a governorship, which coming from being a slave was an incredible feat. He really was ranking high, but he, he was also a horrible person. He was brutal. He was known for his violent suppressions of uprisings within Jerusalem. Now remember, we don't want uprisings, so he had very any hint of uprisings. He basically arrested everyone and crucified them. He was known for crucifying more people than any other governor before him. Now, crucifixions were brutal, as we know that already through understanding the death of our Lord. He was also a very uh, um, man who had a great lust for power and women. He had four wives. Um, he, kept, uh, he certainly had no way of, of restraining his indulgence. Um, and he had a great desire to rise to even more power, and he would do anything he could to accomplish that. His wife in this passage is Drusilla. We'll learn about her shortly. Um, and she is equal to him in terms of her lust for power and for pleasure. She was married to a king of a small kingdom within Syria, and uh, they had an illustrious affair. They both uh, cheated on their spouses and left their spouses and had their own relationship. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. So she was a Jew by birth, and as a Jewess, she was an apostate. So she understood Jewish religion, but she was an apostate. Tacticus, a Roman historian, describes Felix as this, and I quote, a master of cruelty and lust, and he exercised the power of a king, but he had the mind of a slave. Not the kind of guy that you really want to have judging your case, right? 
How cruel was he? Well, I'll tell you how cruel he was. Shortly after Claudius died, and we'll read in our chapter, he was recalled from his governorship because of his brutality. He was told, you need to come back to Rome. You are way too brutal. You're too cruel. We don't want you representing Rome. And guess who the emperor was who recalled him? Nero. Now, he is the most brutal and cruelest of any leader in ancient history. And if he thinks that Felix is too cruel, that tells you a lot about who Felix is. <laughs> you get a, a sense of the world that our forefathers lived in. We have it pretty good, don't we? So anyway, here we are, um, and Paul is being brought before this wicked man, and yet God is going to use this wicked man to accomplish his purpose. Now the accusers come in, and we read about this in 24.1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. The word spokesman there uh, is translated lawyer. And so we have a high-powered attorney that was hired by the Sanhedrin to represent them to bring their case against Paul. Ananias, the corrupt high priest, comes down uh, with some of the elders. Clearly, these would have been Sadducees. Uh, last time, if you recall, the Sanhedrin's made up of a majority of Sadducees. These were political uh, syncophants to the Ananias. They could care less about theology. They were more concerned about keeping their power and prestige in Jerusalem. And it says that they came down and they were summoned before Felix. And the accusation, a formal accusation begins. This is a Roman trial. This is an actual Roman trial. And we see here in verse uh, 2, uh, Tertullus addresses Felix. Now, now listen to this. Listen to how Tertullus begins. Since through you, he's referring to Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. What a phony. Now, it was quite common in Roman courts that uh, and as you give your opening statement, uh, you would address the judge uh, with a sense of, of, of you know, respect and a sense of honor. In Latin, this was referred to as captatio benevolente. But this was over the top. This is just, this is incredulous because here you're dealing with a man who has been crucifying Jewish people, who hates Jewish people. None of his policies have been good for the Jews. You're a liar and you're slimy and you're trying to appeal to this crooked ruler for your own selfish purposes. Tertullus then went on to enumerate three charges against Paul. And what we see here is that the charges are really no different than what Christians endure throughout history. The first one we see in um, verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. All right, so that's the first accusation. He's a plague. This man's a disease. He's a cancer. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, and by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. 
So there are three charges enumerated here. Number one, he's a troublemaker. He stirs up riots all over the Roman Empire. That is probably the worst thing you could accuse someone of. Remember the context? Romans don't like rebel rousers. They don't like riots. And he's saying, this guy, everywhere he goes, he starts riots. <laughs> what a twisting of the facts. Lawyers are good at that, aren't they? Lawyers and the media and politicians love to twist facts. They're all in the same bed, right? And so here, did you ever, you know, most people that work in Congress and Senate are lawyers anyway. So you get the idea. So here we go. So, so this, this twisting of the facts, this perversion of the facts, it's not Paul who's starting the riots. It's the people who hate him who's starting riots everywhere he goes. It's the, the Jewish zealots who are chasing him from town to town. They're the ones who are starting the riots. But this is a serious charge. This is the one that could land Paul dead. Isn't that the irony, though? Christians are always accused of disrupting the peace, aren't we? I was reading recently, uh, I saw an article about how Chinese authorities are going into uh, churches and arresting people and bringing them down. Why? Because they're disrupting the peace of China. You, you see this in communist countries and dictatorships. And we see it even here now. You know, there's, there's the zeitgeist of American culture and they look at us Christians. Why can't you guys, why do you have to be the ones that disagree about everything and have your own opinions? Can't you just go with the flow? They see us as the troublemakers. And that's always the way it is. The world is going to hate us. They're going to see us as, as uh, people who, who are troublemakers, who, who inflict problems. Why can't you guys just get along? Why does it have to be your way? Why, why is it only your God and one way to heaven? You're so narrow-minded. You're, you're so bigoted. The second accusation, he accused them, Paul, being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. This is clearly referring to Christianity. Jesus is from Nazareth. Now, it's interesting to note that, that Christianity at this point was still considered a sect of Judaism. It was not its own religion. And from the Roman perspective, that's all it was. This is a Jewish sect. The word sect in Greek is the word heresis. It's where we get the modern English word of heresy. And so what, we're, what he's really accusing Paul is being unorthodox. He's saying, this is a man who is broke from the traditions of Judaism. He teaches heresy. He teaches doctrines. Contrary, it's an it's a, a unorthodox sect of Judaism. And so therefore, he's disrupting the peace of the Jewish people. And then finally, they accuse him of desecrating the temple. Again, this is a bold-faced lie. We know already that this was a false accusation. Paul never stepped foot inside the temple precincts with any Gentiles. But why is this such a serious charge? Again, it goes back to the unity. Rome wants peace, and Rome made a deal with Jerusalem that they would not step foot beyond the court of the Gentiles into the temple. They treated it as sacred ground. Much like today, you go into Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock, right? Everybody respects that. No one will cross that line over there because they know there'd be World War III if they did. And it's the same thing with the temple in Jerusalem at this current time in history that we're looking at, and that is the Romans understood this was a sacred ground and they respected it. There were signs outside the temple walls that said, Gentiles, you enter upon pain of death. They understood there was a distinction. 
And so this would have upset the agreement in the peace between Jerusalem and Rome. But there's one more thing that the ESV leaves out that earlier other manuscripts leave in, and that is in verse 6b to 8, a, and it says this, he even tried to profane the temple, we seized him, and we wanted to judge him according to our law, but Commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. So now they're accusing Lysias of lying. We wanted to treat him fairly. It's your tribune who did everything wrong. Well, you could imagine that this might not have went too well with Felix. But now look at Paul's defense. Look at Paul's defense. And so in uh, verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all these things were so, so there were other people there present. In verse 10, when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, and I think it's important that we see Paul's response here. Because it teaches us how to respond to false accusations. When people slander you, what's the immediate response? You're angry. I hate when people misrepresent me. I hate when people slander me. I hate when people say things about me that are not true. And usually when that happens, it invokes an emotional response, right? And usually we act emotional, right? But here, what do we see? Paul has a very measured and calm response. There's one way to deal with lies. Speak the truth. That's all you have to do is tell the truth and rest in that. People don't believe it, they don't believe it. Tell the truth and that's it. And so we see here, we begin with Paul's defense. In verse 10, and clearly this is not a man who's trying to puff up Felix's head like Tertullus. Listen to what he says. Knowing, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Very good, Paul. That was very truthful. No need to embellish the facts. Felix is a wicked man. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So it's been 12 days since this whole incident began till he got to Caesarea. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up any crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither did they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So he's basically saying, where's the proof? Where's the evidence that I'm going around and starting riots and, and I didn't even talk to nobody? Nothing happened the whole time that I was there. But then verse 14, he confesses his faith. But I conf this I confess to you that according to the way, which is what the church was called, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law, written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. Felix, I'm not the leader of a heresy group. I worship the same God. And what he brings in here is the real issue is not the matter of whether he's leading a heretical sect. The real issue is the resurrection. Paul knows he has Pharisees who are standing by his side, 
back in Jerusalem. And so he's playing the game well. This is about the resurrection. And really, isn't that what the gospel is about? There's no resurrection. There's no gospel. What's on trial here is the gospel. Turn your Bibles to Acts 15. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15. What does Paul say about the resurrection? Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul, for Paul, the resurrection is the gospel. No resurrection, then we're the most pitied, we're the big, most pitied people in the world. Our faith is in vain. This is all a joke. So this is not just playing the game with the Pharisees. This is an appeal to the doctrine of the resurrection and appeal to the gospel. This is what it's about. This is so fundamental. This is why I always encourage people, if you're sharing the gospel with someone who's not a believer, do not leave out the resurrection. It is, in, it is an incomplete gospel when you tell people that Jesus died for their sins, but do not say that he was raised for them. You are preaching an incomplete gospel. Christ died, but he rose again. And this is what Paul's on trial for, ultimately. Isn't that what really is, is a stick in the craw for the Jews? Isn't that what really angers them? They killed Jesus. They murdered him. And then they, they try to go to the Romans and say, listen, you've got to tell someone that they, they stole his body. They were infuriated when they found out that Christ rose from the dead. They didn't come to faith. They doubled down on their anger. They doubled down on their unbelief. No, Paul is not the leader of a heresy. He, he preaches the truth and he says, I confess, I have a clear conscience before God and men. That's what's more important than anything, having a clear conscience. When you can go to bed at night and lay down and sleep peacefully, knowing that you've lived your life before God in righteousness and purity, when you know you've done right by all men, that's a beautiful thing when you can go to bed at night. It's a beautiful thing when you can look at yourself in the mirror and, and actually look at yourself. A clear conscience, money can't buy that. The cause of most psychological and neurotic problems is that people have seared consciences. Their consciences are afflicting them. They're carrying the guilt and the burden weight of sin. And so what do they do? They try to placate it. They take pills, they, they drink, they do drugs, they go shopping, they indulge themselves in pleasure, all to quiet their conscience. See, Paul isn't afraid. He should have been afraid, 
But you know why he can rest in his prison at night and sleep well? Because he has a clear conscience. We'll juxtapose that with Felix and we'll see it's much different. Remember Pilate? He couldn't sleep the night before Christ was uh, condemned. He had nightmares all night. He was tormented. When you don't have a clear conscience, you have a tormented soul. There's no other place, no worse place to be. That's when anxiety and fear take over your life. When you don't have a clear conscience. So Paul goes on to defend himself. Verse 17. He says, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say the wrong during they found when I stood before their council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial before you today. You see, what was at stake here was not only the resurrection, but notice what's at stake. He says, where are my accusers? Where's the witnesses? You see, it's a breach of Roman law to make an accusation without witnesses. It's a breach of Jewish law to make an accusation of without witnesses. If there's people here who have evidence of my wrongdoing, let them speak. You see, at this point now, the burden of proof lies on his accusers. Felix really is supposed to judge at this point, case dismissed. But God has a different plan, doesn't he? <laughs> God always has a different plan. If I was pulled at this point, I thought, okay, the case is over. I'm going home. Verse 22 tells us, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. So he puts it off. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. So Paul is put on house arrest, essentially, has freedom to go into town, he can have his friends over, but he is going to be detained until this case can be heard again. Now, according to Roman law, you could not detain someone indefinitely, but that's exactly what happens to Paul. Verse 24 tells us that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a Jew who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. This is beautiful. Paul's there, he's detained, he could be bitter, he could be begging for his freedom, and look what he says. He's speaking to them about faith in Jesus Christ. He's preaching the gospel. And notice what it says. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. These were the topics he was talking to Felix about. A known brutal dictator. Someone who had no self-control. Someone who was unrighteous. And someone who did not fear God. But Paul knew he was there for a purpose. To testify of Christ. And with boldness and courage he preached the gospel. You could imagine what kind of man Paul was because it says this. 
Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. You know what alarmed there means? It means he was terrified. But guess what? It didn't bring about repentance. There's a lot of people who get moved when they hear the gospel. They say, woe is me, I'm undone. Woe is me, I'm about to... I'm a sinner, I need grace, I need salvation. But then you know what happens? Just like Pharaoh who cried out and said, Lord, Lord, please deliver me. Moses, please stop this plague, I'm a sinner. And then it says Pharaoh's heart hardened. The heart of Felix hardened again. Verse 26, it says, At the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. He never repented. This is a man dominated by greed and lust. He was hoping that Paul would, would give him bribe money and set him free. And he basically held him indefinitely. Could Paul have paid that money and gotten out of it? Absolutely. If I was Paul, I might have just paid the money and got my freedom. That's probably what I would have done. But Paul stayed in that situation, trusting God. He trusted God. He stayed the course. He was faithful. If he had paid that bribe money, what would it have done to the integrity of the gospel? Remember, I live with a clear conscience before God and men. Felix does not. Felix can't live with himself. He can't go to bed at night. Guys, let me say this. We live in a godless society. We live in a world where, where there's a lot of slimy people, where there's a lot of Felixes, where there's a lot of unethical actions, where there's wretchedness and wickedness. We could justify our minds why we should be like everyone else to be dishonest to pay the bribe to just go with the flow but where is the integrity of the gospel where is the integrity of our testimony where is the integrity of the message people won't believe when we act just like them there are two conclusions I want to bring out today there's so much to take in there's a lot of historical narrative but take two things out of this thing. Number one is the sovereign hand of God in providence. It's a beautiful thing to know that God has a plan for our lives. That plan is for good, for his glory, and will always end in his will and purpose and joy. We learned about perseverance of the saints today. God's going to bring us across that finish line, and he does it by his providential care. We need to rest in that. We need to rest in the fact that no matter what happens in our lives, God's going to take care of us. We need not be anxious. We need not be fearful. Fear and anxiety come when we don't have a clear conscience. And that's the second point that I want you to take away today. You want to live free of anxiety? You want to live free of fear? Then live with a clear conscience. If there are things in your life that you know are not right with God or with your fellow man, Repent. Repent. Don't wait till you're on your deathbed to call someone and say, listen, i got to make amends with you. I've seen this all through my life. 
There was uh, several years ago, a member of our church, her mother was dying and she called up her ex-husband and she called this one. She was making amends with everyone, begging for forgiveness. Why do you wait to your deathbed? Because you know you're going to face God. Make amends today because tomorrow may not be granted to you. You may not make it home tonight. You may have a stroke or a heart attack or you may get into an accident. And you're home and you didn't have the chance. You should have made amends, but you didn't. Live with a clear conscience before God and man. When you have a clear conscience, you will be free from fear and anxiety. We have fear and anxiety because our conscience convicts us. Our conscience tells us we have guilt and therefore we dread the consequences of that. So we live in fear and we live in a sense of anxiety because we know something bad's got to be coming to me because I'm not right. You don't need to go to psychiatrists. You don't need uh, people to tell you how to overcome these things. It, go back to the word of God. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. He suffered and died. He bore our sins. All the guilt, all the shame, all the, the, the horrible uh, uh, offenses to God. Taken care of. Wiped away. Cleansed. Rose from the dead to give us new life. Eternal life in him. The Bible says, repent and believe. Have faith. And God will forgive us. I've heard Paul say oftentimes, he says... He quotes in John chapter 2, or John chapter 1, where Christ says uh, to Nathaniel, uh, a, a true Israelite, a man in whom there's no guile. And he says, I hope the Lord could say that about me. Paul's not here now, but wouldn't it be nice if the Lord could say that of all of us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this day. I ask, Almighty God, that you would please, uh, Father God, uh, be with us today. Lord, so much to take in here but yet we're seeing how you're moving in Paul's life during his period Paul's with you in heaven now Lord but there was a time in his life where all these trials and the pain and suffering was real to be two years languishing in prison and yet God you had a plan you were preserving him for a greater purpose we may feel like we're languishing sometimes Lord we may say Lord where are you how come you're not intervening why aren't you changing my situation Lord help us to be faithful in the midst of trials. Help us to be faithful when it seems there's no answer. Help us to stay the course, O oh Lord, and not grow weary in doing good. Help us, O oh Lord, to be men and women of clear conscience before you and men. In Jesus' name, amen.